Welcome to the Ideas That Change the World podcast with Rabbi Manus Friedman, where we make sure your life will be changed for the better, one idea at a time. Rabbi Friedman is the number one voice of clarity on moral and social issues. So what are we waiting for? Let's go change the world. This is a very ambitious program that we're trying to do here because uh, we are very deeply inculcated with the uh, teachings of psychology. We think of ourselves along those lines. We're sure that that's what we are. That's why we do what we do. And here we're trying to change all that, to create a new picture, a new image, a new understanding of what the human system is all about, what the human psyche is all about. So we spoke about the definition of a human being, and that is that a human being is a creature whose emotions are intelligent. A person in whom the mind controls the heart. And this is a fundamental teaching of Chabad, of the first Chabad Rebbe, of Chabad philosophy, that the mind governs the heart. But it's not enough to simply say that, and it's not enough to simply believe that. We have to understand it thoroughly. Otherwise, we're not using our mind. So how is it going to govern our heart? What is the relationship between mind and heart? If we don't know the answer to that, and if we don't have a healthy relationship between mind and heart, then no amount of psychology or psychiatric drugs is going to do any good. So let's get to know ourselves a little further. What is the relationship between intelligence and emotion, between mind and heart? At first glance, mind and heart are mutually exclusive entities. They have different properties, they have different nature, they have different rules. In fact, they might even be opposites. Because the nature of the mind is to rise. And the nature of the heart is to descend. Intelligence goes up, emotion goes down. Intelligence goes up means that the mind is interested, seeks, and finds pleasure in that which is above it. The mind always wants to know what it doesn't yet know. The emotions, on the other hand, their direction is downward because the fulfillment and the satisfaction of an emotion is when you complete it. You think about it, you speak about it, and you act on it. Thinking, speaking, and acting are below the emotion. They are lesser. So emotion moves towards behavior, and behavior is lower than the emotion. Lower in that it is more external, further removed from the soul. So if you want to describe a soul, you would say it's intelligent to whatever degree. How intelligent is this soul? And what does this soul feel? Now you've described the soul. Because the emotions and the intelligence of the soul, that's what it is. That's what it is. When you talk about behavior, that's just what it does. You can see a difference there. So the emotion is a part of the soul. Thinking about it, speaking about it, acting on it, that's outside the soul. So it is lower, more external, less significant to the soul. And that's why in behavior, you can be contradicting yourself. You can be feeling anger and yet speaking nicely. You can fake it. 
You can even think positive thoughts when you are, in fact, angry and hateful. And that might help soften the anger. It might help dissipate the hatred. Or it might just be hypocritical. But the actions don't have to be consistent with your feelings because they're external. Behavior can be adopted. You can say somebody else's words. You can think somebody else's thoughts. You can certainly do things that are not for you. It's external. Whereas emotions are a part of the soul itself. Example. You love somebody. There was a moment before you loved, and then there's the moment when you feel the love. What has changed? What happened? What is the before and after? You made a sale at work. Before you made the sale, you didn't have the money. When you made the sale, now you have the money. I know what changed. There's a before and there's an after. Before you were without money, now you have the money. Can we say the same thing about love? Can we say that there was you before you loved and you didn't have any? And now there's you with love. So you've gained something. Something has been added. It wasn't there before, it's there now. That's not really correct. Love is not a thing. What happens is your heart is malleable. It's flexible. And it's shapeless. It's a blob. Emotions give the heart a certain shape. Anger has a certain shape. Hate has a certain shape. And love has a certain shape. So what does it mean that you love? It means your heart is now shaped in that form. So what have you gained? What thing do you have now that you didn't have before? No thing. There's no thing. It's like your heart tilted that way. That's love. If it tilts that way, it's hate. So what have you gained? It's not that you gained something. You have moved in a certain direction. So there's nothing there besides you. You when you were in this shape and you in that shape. Which tells us that the love is an indispensable, inseparable thing from the heart. And the same with all the emotions. Thoughts, on the other hand, are different. Before you thought this thought, you were without it. You didn't have that idea. Now you've thought of it, you've got a new thought in your mind. Something has been added to your life. Even intelligence works that way. Before you knew the subject, you were without it. When you've mastered the subject, now you've got it. See, you got it? You got it. Because you gained something. It's a tangible something that you did not have before and you have now. That's why we say that emotions go downwards. The emotion is the shape of your heart. And where does it go? Where does it find its satisfaction and its pleasure? In acting or speaking or thinking. And that's lower than itself. On the other hand, to use a bad metaphor, in the mind, on the other hand, when you're studying, when you're using your intelligence, you become withdrawn 
You move away from action, away from speech, away from behavior. You lose yourself in the subject. And the subject is above you because you don't know it yet. It's just beyond your reach. So you're struggling to understand something. That means you're moving upwards, deeper into your soul where the information exists, where your potential for wisdom or understanding exists. So emotions move you out of yourself. Intelligence moves you into yourself. Self here meaning soul. If, in fact, intelligence goes upwards and emotions go downwards, then what is their relationship? How do they communicate? How does mind affect the heart? The image, the physical image, the mind sits above the heart. And its influence is supposed to trickle down from the brain to the heart. The problem is that between the head and the heart, there is a narrow passage called the neck. When that neck is blocked, when it's backed up, when it's, what do they call it, a bottleneck, when you got traffic blocked up, when the neck is blocked, then the influence of the mind to the heart is impeded. That's why we are called a stiff-necked people. Stiff-necked means we know better, but we won't do it. Because what we know will not trickle down to the heart. We won't let it. A stiff-necked people, you see miracles. You were brought out of Egypt with ten plagues. You were taken across a sea by the water splitting and standing still like a wall. And you saw the Egyptians drown in that same, in that same sea. And then you turn around and say, I don't care. You haven't touched me. Stiff-necked people. I see it. I know it. I understand it. But I will not be impressed. I will not be moved. The neck interferes when it's uh, a stiff-necked people. So, how do the mind and heart communicate when they are, in fact, in some ways, opposites? Here's what Hasidic philosophy tells us. God is an absolute and pure existence. One of the 13 principles of faith is that God is not a composite being. He is not composed of parts. He is pure existence. He is what he is, and that's all that he is. All of creation, on the other hand, are composite creatures. When God creates things, he doesn't create anything in its raw, pure self. Everything in creation, although it has its own properties and its own nature, it also has the nature of other things. We're composed. We've got different parts. And that's why creation is described in Kabbalah as Seder Hishtalshulus, an order of a chain. What is it with a chain? Every link in a chain is basically made up of three parts. A third of the link belongs to the link above it. It's in the link above it. Another third of it is within the link below it. And only the middle third is itself, free to be, me. But one third of me belongs to something above me, and another third of me belongs to something below me. And that's me. Those three parts together make up me. So part of me is really somebody else. And yet that's what makes me. So 
the upper third of what I am belongs to my ancestors. I have their qualities. I have their memories. I have their experiences. That's what makes me what I am. Another third of me belongs to my children. They make me what I am. They are a third of my life, of my, exi- of my identity. And then there's a third of me that's just me. But only when I have all three parts am I a complete person. So for me to be me, I have to include others. And that's true of everything in nature. Everything in nature is made up of four elements, fire, air, water, and earth. And that includes water. Water is made up of fire, air, water, and earth. And fire is made up of fire, air, water, and earth. So every, everything in creation is a composite. Intelligence is also a composite being. There's a part of it that is influenced by will, and it has certain qualities similar to will, even though it's intelligence. Intelligence also has certain qualities similar to emotion, even though it's not emotion, it's intelligence. This is called, in Jewish philosophy, cause and effect. Cause and effect doesn't mean anytime somebody is influenced or affected by something else. It's not like if you lay out in the sun, you're going to get sunburned. Cause and effect. No, it's just cause. <laughs> cause and effect means something like the chicken lays an egg. The chicken is the cause, the egg is the effect. Why is that called cause and effect? In the chicken, There is an egg before the egg even exists. A chicken makes eggs. In other words, it is part of the definition of what a chicken is, is that it makes other chickens. It lays eggs. It doesn't lay golf balls. If a chicken laid a golf ball, it would not be cause and effect. It would be a miracle or a weird chicken. But when a chicken lays an egg, that's cause and effect. Because where you have cause and effect, the effect exists within the cause. And it's just a matter of getting it out. Every concept, every understanding, every piece of wisdom demands a certain emotion. If you study a subject and it does not move you to a feeling one way or the other, positive or negative, then either the subject isn't worth studying, it's an irrelevant topic, or you don't yet understand it properly. If you understand a subject properly, the intelligence itself demands an emotional response. Although an emotional response belongs to emotions and not to intelligence, but intelligence is created this way that it has an element of emotion within it, not that it is an emotion, but that it will demand an emotion. For example, you study a subject and you understand it well, And your mind, your intelligence says, so what? And therefore? Because if it doesn't result in an emotion, there's something lacking in the intelligence. Either in the information or in the understanding. You don't understand it properly. If you understood it properly, you would get excited, either with fear or with love.
it would either draw you closer or frighten you off. But if you're neutral, you're not understanding the subject. It's a little bit um, paradoxical because if you study a subject and it is pure knowledge, unrelated to emotion, then you have pure intelligence, pure chachma. The lower level chachma, the lower level wisdom, is when you have a wisdom related to an emotion. It's not pure anymore. So maybe we could put it this way. When intelligence is completely beyond any emotion, and you study a subject purely for the pleasure of knowing, that is pure intelligence. When you've studied the subject and it moves you to an emotion, that is true intelligence. Make sense? So you can have pure intelligence, which is unrelated to feelings, and then you can have true intelligence. It leads you to an emotion. So why can intelligence affect emotion if they're opposite in their properties? It's because they cross, there's a crossover. There's a certain amount of intelligence to the heart, even though the heart is not intelligent. And there's a certain amount of emotion to the mind, even though the mind is not emotional. It's like the links in the chain. It's a composite being. So because there is an element of emotion within the mind, that's why it can affect the heart. What is the element of emotion in the mind? Emotion means movement, right or left, pro or con, towards or away, attraction, repulsion. That's in the heart. In the mind, there is also a movement to right and left. It's not an emotional thing. It's a mental thing. But in the mind, it's Yes or no? When you study a subject, do you agree with it or do you disagree with it? Does it appeal to you intellectually or not? The fact that an idea can either be appealing or not appealing, that's a little similar to an emotion. And that's why you have, for example, two sages who are both studying the same commandment and they come to opposite conclusions. One sage concludes that this event or this act or this food or this behavior is permissible. And the other comes to the conclusion that it's, that it's forbidden. There's a yes and a no. Permissible, non-permissible. For, against. And there are no emotions here. In what way, now that we know that the mind can affect emotion because they do have something in common, how does the mind affect emotion? One of the fundamental differences between mind and heart, between intelligence and emotion, is that intelligence is objective. Emotions are subjective. And that means that in your mind you are not self-conscious. In your emotions you are self-conscious. The mind is not about you. The mind is about it. What is it? What is that? Why is that? How is that? So the mind is not self-conscious. 
It's not self-seeking. It's not based in self. It's other-oriented. Who are you? What are you? Emotion, on the other hand, is very self-aware. I feel, I hate, I want, I like. I love you. What are the dynamics here? If I love you, what is the subject of that sentence? I or you? The subject is I. This is about me. You want to know about me? Let's talk about me. Me? I love you. Oh, so we're talking about you? No, we're talking about me. And the more times I tell you how much I love you, the more I'm talking about myself. Because I'm the one who loves. You're just the object. Love means I find something in you that is comfortable, familiar, and appealing to me. There's something about you that pertains to me. That's called love. Or hate. And that's why if I find nothing in you that pertains to me, then the result will be indifference. I don't love you. I don't hate you. We're not related. So how do emotions work? Emotions work subjectively. And that means I have to find something in you or in it or in the food or whatever it is that makes it or you relevant to me. So all emotions are based on relevance. Does it have anything to do with me? <laughs> talking to me? You talking to me? <laughs> Is this about me? Do you have something for me? Are we related in any way so that we can consider this relevant? Because if not, I'm completely indifferent. I have no feelings at all. The mind doesn't work that way. The mind is curious about things that have no relevance. I want to know about life on Mars. Why? Because it's there. The sun is going to die out in two billion years. Really, let's talk about that. Why? You plan to live that long. You're going to know anybody who lives that long. What, what is it to you? It's totally irrelevant. And maybe we really shouldn't talk about it because it's so irrelevant. But the mind is curious. The mind is not restricted to, is it relevant to me? Can I relate to it? The mind is able to relate objectively. Right? So, in the emotion, you start off being a stranger. But because I am centered in myself, and I take everything personally, emotionally, therefore, I need to know, now that you're in this room, do you have anything to offer me? Can I find something relevant in you that might work for me? That's what emotions are. So in the emotion, I am centered in myself, I'm living in my universe, and I want to know what you can contribute to my existence. So I start off subjective, and I end up interested in you, which is good, because I can be so subjective, <laughs> I can be so subjective that I'm only interested in me. I can be completely antisocial. The opposite happens in the mind. The mind begins objectively. A brilliant mind seeks out a subject that nobody has ever experienced, nobody has ever 
thought about, nobody has ever mastered before. I want to master it. Well, but why? It's so irrelevant. That's the way the mind works. It has an objective interest, right? But then again, what happens when you have studied a subject and you've mastered it? You've gotten a good grasp. You really understand it well. All of a sudden, it has become personal. If you're a physicist and you're good at it, you're sitting in a crowded room and somebody says, electron, your ears perk up. Nobody's talking to you. But electron, hey, that's me. That's my subject. The mind brings the information closer and it becomes you. How does the mind influence the heart? The mind is seductive. It seduces the heart. What that means is this. Will can influence the heart. If you really want to love somebody, you will love them. Will stimulates the love. But how does will stimulate the love? Will dictates. It says, we're going to love whether you like it or not. I'm not asking your opinion. It has to happen, and that's the end. Got to be. Which means will is not concerned with what you think or what you feel. What has to be, has to be, make it happen. I don't care how. How does the heart get to love someone? I don't care how. Make it happen. If you have to break a few rules, cut a few corners, I don't care. Make it happen. Pharaoh says, build me a pyramid, and I want it done by tomorrow. You don't have enough bricks? Then put your children in there. Get it done. Intelligence doesn't work that way. Intelligence says to the heart, this is really good. I've studied this. This is good. This is useful. This is important. This is positive. This is virtuous. We really should get into this. You should love this, this person or this behavior or this value, whatever it is. So the mind is saying, listen to me. I'm telling you, this is good. This is what you should love. But it's not dictating. It's seducing. How do you seduce? You find out what appeals to the heart. And then make this thing that you find important appealing. In other words, work with the nature of the heart. Don't overrule it. So although you're trying to tell the heart what to feel, which is a little similar to will, but you're not discrediting or discounting the heart's method. You're using the heart's method to get it to love what you know it ought to love. So what does the mind do? The mind finds subjective, relevant value that it knows will appeal to the heart. Because to the heart, you have to be relevant. can't be objective. So although the mind pursues the subject objectively, it then conveys it to the heart subjectively. That's called seduction. I know that it's good my way. I discovered the value my way. The way that a mind discovers. But when I'm talking to the heart, the mind says, 
When I speak to the heart, you speak the heart's language. Don't ignore it. Don't overrule it. Don't cancel it out. Win it over. How do you win over the heart? Offer it what it appreciates. Say it in a way that it can understand. How can a heart understand? Make it subjective. So what does it mean that the mind rules the heart? Really not talking about ruling, we're talking about influencing, convincing, enticing. That's not force. That's not governing. The very fact that the mind needs to appeal to the heart shows that it doesn't have absolute authority. It can't govern. It has to convince. It has to appeal. It has to seduce. Here's the interesting thing. When you understand a subject really deeply and you appreciate the true wisdom of that subject, which goes beyond passing a test, then you have connected with that subject so deeply that you can convince your heart by showing it the relevance, the appeal, the sweetness that even the heart can appreciate. But when the mind understands a subject only superficially, I don't mean incorrectly, that, that's off the chart. He understands the subject. He can pass the test. He'll get his degree. He'll get his PhD. But he never really got into the depth of the idea. Then, because his understanding is somewhat external, superficial, on the surface, it will demand an emotion. It will force a feeling. It will govern the heart. It won't appeal to it. You know, any authority, you go to any rabbi and say, I don't get along with my wife. And the rabbi will say, but you have to. You're supposed to go home and love your wife. Try harder. Do it. You have to. Divorce is not an option. Any rabbi can say that. And he's right. Absolutely right. This is not the topic for tonight, but the fact is divorce is not an option any more than an amputation is an option. It's an emergency, it's not an option. So, it's correct, it's not an option. But, only the wisest of rabbis can send the man home more in love with his wife. Because the deeper you understand the subject, the better you are able to convince the heart. Convince, not dictate. So here's the ironic thing. The more intellectual, the deeper the intelligence, the better it appeals to the heart. The more external, the more superficial, the more surface the understanding is, the more it will dictate to the heart. I know I should. I have to. I really have to. I know. I know. It's not the same thing. So when the Alta Rebbe, whose birthday we're celebrating this week, says the mind governs the heart, he's talking about a person who is tempted to sin. And he's saying, you don't have to sin just because you're tempted. The mind governs the heart. Is he talking about a person who has a profound understanding of right and wrong and can therefore convince the heart, seduce the heart? Obviously not. So when you're on that level, 
you have to use the expression govern. The mind governs the heart. In an intelligent person, if intelligence dictates a certain behavior, you really don't have much of a choice. What, are you going to do something stupid? You can't. When a person is convinced that something is wrong, they can't do it. So the mind does dictate the behavior. It can also dictate to the heart. You love it because you know you have to, because you know it's only right. But have you moved the heart with a greater love? That's only if you understand it more deeply. So the deeper the understanding, the more you absorb it into your system, it becomes you. If it becomes you, then you know how to appeal to your heart because your heart wants to know what's in it for me. Why is that relevant to me? How does that suit me? Why should I do that? A person studies, for example, a topic like love your neighbor as yourself. It's a profound subject. You can't make such a demand without it being steeped in reality, in wisdom, in correctness, in necessary, compelling, convincing truths. If you're going to love your neighbor as yourself, there's got to be a lot of reasoning behind this. There's got to be a lot of substance to that. It's a steep demand. And so it is. It is, in fact, a huge subject. What does it mean to love someone as yourself? How do you love yourself? And if that's how you love yourself, how can you transfer that to somebody? It's a fantastic, profound subject. Suppose you've studied that subject and you really understand it well. How will that affect your heart? What kind of love will you have for your neighbor? And what if you don't understand it that well? It will still compel you to love. But then the love is a little forced, which is not bad. It's a lot better than the alternative. But it's a different relationship between that emotion and the mind versus the emotion that you would have from the mind if the mind understood the subject more thoroughly, more totally, more completely. It would be a different love. One of the differences would be this. You've got to be nice to people. Certainly to members of your own family, your own people. You got, you ha if you're a decent human being, if you've got a half a brain in your head, you've you got to be nice to people. Right? You, I mean, your mother taught you to share. Even when you were two. You've got to be a mensch. You've got to be nice. You live with people, you're related to people, you depend on people, you've got to be nice. You don't have to be a genius to figure that out. It is logically compelling. So, so you're nice. Even to, what's his name? <laughs> Why are you nice to what's his name? You've got to be nice to people, he's a person. Love your neighbor? He's a neighbor. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't pick him as a neighbor, but he's a neighbor. Love your neighbor? Fine, so I got to love him. He's your fellow Jew? Well, you're stuck with him. Might as well love him. Okay, fine. If I understood better, deeper, more thoroughly the rightfulness, the correctness, the beauty, the value, the virtue, of loving your neighbor, then I wouldn't love him because he's a neighbor. Even what's his name? Even him I would love 
because I would find him lovable. It's a big difference, isn't it? You can be nice to people because you've got to be nice to people. And then you can be nice to each person because you find something lovable in that person. What's going to make the difference in how you love? The degree of understanding. The more personal the understanding becomes, the better you are at emotions. The shallower your understanding is, the more impersonal your emotions are going to be. And that's why a fool feels nothing. You can't embarrass a fool because he feels nothing. You call him a fool and he doesn't take it personally. Why? Because <laughs> he's a fool. A fool means a person whose knowledge is completely superficial. He's not brainless. He's a fool. Which means he has information. He doesn't understand it. So because his understanding is so impersonal, his emotions are that way too. He takes nothing personally. Or he takes the wrong things personally. His emotions are a wreck, a mess. So the way the mind goes, that's how the heart goes. A thorough mind produces very profound emotions. A shallow mind produces shallow emotions. And that gives us a whole new appreciation of a very familiar and very uh, simple piece of wisdom. Divrei chachamim benachas nishmoyen. The words of the wise are heard gently. The conventional understanding of that is if you're smart, then you speak softly. If you're not so smart, you speak loudly. If you really don't know what you're talking about, then you shout. So there's an inverse proportion here. The less you understand, the louder your voice. Why is that? You're trying to influence other people's feelings. If you understand deeply, then you seduce the feeling. And then there's no violence. You're not overwhelming the heart. You're not dictating to the heart. You're not trying to humble it into submission. It's gentle. It's persuasive. It's appealing. It's irresistible. So it all happens pleasantly. What does it mean to appeal to someone? To make it pleasant. When you appeal to your own heart and you speak the language of the heart, you're not dictating to it. Then the heart will respond to you, to what you're saying, because what you're saying is appealing. Appealing means pleasant. If your understanding is not so deep, then the effect on the heart is going to be more dictatorial, more demanding. You have to. I mean, you, got, you just have to. And that's correct. You do. You have to. But the heart feels a little put upon. The heart feels a little violated. It's not so pleasant. It's correct. The heart might even obey. But not because what you're saying is pleasant, but because what you're saying is undeniable. I think that everyone said to somebody, when you argue with a person and you're trying to convince him that you're right on any subject, always leave room for the possibility that he is right. Otherwise, you will win an argument and lose a friend. If you are so compelling and so convincing in your argument that the other person's position can't possibly be right, 
He'll hate you. <laughs> he might even hit you. You have violated him. You've crushed him. You've destroyed him. Never be that convincing. I remember a philosopher, a Hasidic philosopher, professor of philosophy, a Hasid. He was giving this lecture, and he was devastatingly convincing. I mean, the logic was inescapable. And he probably noticed this towards the end of his speech. And basically, he was presenting the case for observance to a group of non-observant Jews. And it was, he had them locked in from all four sides. There was no escape. There was no wiggle room. He had them nailed down. So at the end of the speech, he said, and therefore, it's obvious that if you're Jewish, this is your Torah, this is your God, well, then you have to be observant. I think. <laughs> he just ended off with those. He had been so convincing and compelling, and at the end he says, uh, I think. Just my opinion. And that kind of released <laughs> all the pent-up pressure. The same is true with your own heart. Don't convince your heart so uh, intensely, so, so strongly, that it leaves the heart no option. You might get the heart to obey, but it's also, it also feels violated. And of course, the same is true with children. You must be absolutely firm in your values with a child. No gray area. Yes or no, right or wrong. And in fact, when something is wrong, there should be zero tolerance. Zero. If you have one iota of tolerance, you've ruined the message and possibly ruined the child. If you say to a child, you cannot play with matches, I think, that's a very bad message. That is not good parenting. When you teach a child values, it has to be absolutely firm, unyielding, unbending, uncompromising. Right is right, wrong is wrong. There is no wiggle room. But at the same time, you can't stifle or suffocate the child, which would mean the values that you teach the child have to be age-appropriate, not more than the age permits. So you can say to a child, for example, you may not hit your friend ever, never. No wiggle room, zero tolerance. You raise your hand against another child, unacceptable. Don't ever get angry at another child. That's correct, but not, not a six-year-old. You cannot demand of a six-year-old, never lose your temper, even though morally that is correct. But if you tell a child, never raise your hand and never lose your temper, you're suffocating him. He can't handle that much morality. So don't tell him at six years old that he may not lose his temper. Tell him that when he's 12 or 15 or 32, depending on the maturity of the child. So if it's age appropriate, or better yet, if it's appropriate for this particular child, then it has to be with zero tolerance. If it's not appropriate, then don't bring it up at all. So when you want your heart to obey your mind, make sure that it's an appropriate expectation. Don't overwhelm your heart with too many expectations. That's called the seductiveness of the mind. 
not the dictatorship of mind. So, if you have a shallow understanding, then dictate to your heart and just get it to obey until you all go grow older and wiser. If you have a thorough understanding of a subject, then the heart will be irresistibly drawn. And when that happens, not only does the heart experience the proper emotion, you love who you're supposed to love, you hate when you're supposed to hate, you fear only when fear is justified, and so on and so forth, you have intelligent emotions. But when the emotion follows the intelligence, then your understanding and your intelligence has now been completed. It fulfills the knowledge when the heart is moved. Because then you know that you've really understood the subject. That's the acid test. A person says, you know, I went to yeshiva. I studied. I was there for years. Yeah, I studied the Talmud and all, I, the whole thing. Not for me. Well, maybe uh, if you understood it better. No, I understood it. I was a good student. I got good grades. Don't care. It's not possible. You cannot possibly study the Torah, understand it, and walk away indifferent. How could you? The Torah is about you. Speak to the children of Israel. Well, what do you mean you walked away? God is talking to you. Say yes, say no, I love it, I hate it. You can't walk away. So what about people who have attended yeshiva, they studied, they read it, they, they, know, they know the whole Torah from beginning to end and it means nothing to them. They do not understand what they read. Then when you teach it to them properly, they read the same words again and it's like, oh, oh, oh you mean me? Oh, why didn't you say so? Are you talking to me? I thought you were talking to Noah. <laughs> what do I care what God said to Noah? But he's not talking. He spoke to Noah, but he wrote the Torah for you. So why did he record his conversation with Noah? For Noah? <laughs> why did he record the conversation he had with Avraham or with Yitzchak? For you to read. See, he's talking to you. In that case, uh, tell me again, what do you say? <laughs> now I'm listening. So again, the words of the wise are heard pleasantly. See, the conventional understanding is that a wise man speaks softly. Well, then the expression is all wrong. The words of the wise are said softly if that's what you're trying to convey. But the expression is, the words of the wise are heard softly. What in the world does that mean? It means, well, if you speak softly, it's heard. There's something missing here. The deeper meaning is, the words of the wise affect the heart in a way that the heart receives it softly. It gets the message pleasantly without being overruled. And then the feeling, of course, is much deeper and will last longer. Does the emotions have free will? You seduce it, you speak to it, you accomplish as the mind does to the, to the heart. Two-part question, does it have free will? And what does it do with this information? now that it's been received. I'm not sure that the heart has free will because will is a, is, a, is a faculty of its own. The person has free will even after he understands thoroughly and, and totally and so on. He can still do whatever he wants. 
because will can cancel, overrule, dismiss the most compelling, most logical, the most convincing things. The heart doesn't have that kind of a will of its own because it's a, it's a dependent function. It's a responsive. See, will is original. You can want something just because you happen to want it. You don't feel something just because you feel it. Emotions are a response to something. They're not original. They're a reaction. So whatever you put in, whatever information you feed the heart, that's what's going to determine what it's going to feel. But the action after the information is projected to, to the emotion. Okay, that's a process. Mm -hmm. You gather the intellect, you feel it, or you know the subject, and you portray it in whatever style that you have described to the emotion. What is the purpose? What does the emotion do with this information? Now that it has no free will and received it, and it's in the next stage of where mm -hmm. the knowledge is, is given. Okay. The value of the emotion is this. I study something, and I come to the conclusion that this is really important. So we got to do it. You got what? We have to do it. Right. It's the right thing to do. we got to do it. Right. If I skip the emotions, my mind says we got to do it. My body doesn't understand. It doesn't speak mind. It understands the heart. So what happens is, if I can get myself to behave appropriately by force of mind, the behavior will be mechanical, lifeless. When I get the heart to be excited about the rightfulness of my message, and the heart gets me to do it, then the action will be alive, it will be enthusiastic, right? Then the speech becomes, comes alive. The words carry energy instead of just dry. So the value of the heart is, ultimately, in the effect that it has on the behavior. Because it's the behavior that's the bottom line. Well, let me answer the other question. If I may have one more question. You talk about, in the expression you use, in the description, about I love you. You went into quite a depth about that. And the effect that I had was that what's in it for you? That's a quotation. It almost gave me the feeling that you love somebody when you come to that conclusion for your own selfish reasons. The love is a very selfish act on the part of that person. They receive it. Where does the art of giving enter into it? What path does that take? If I may ask that. You mean giving beyond you selfish love somebody because you want to give them you want to, you want to care for them not what they have to offer you how is that part okay so part of giving when you love somebody right is because love demands closeness closeness so when you love somebody you need further closeness. You want to make more bridges, more connections, more contacts. You make those contacts either by receiving from them or giving to them. So giving to someone you love is basically the pursuit of the love. How do you get more closeness? If there's more interaction, more sharing, more... Like... But then there is, I think what you're getting at is, there is the ability to give altruistically to give more than what satisfies my love so that you can you can love somebody is that the level to reach yeah but it's ambitious <laughs> it's ambitious that's the ambition
And you, you go that through the, through the emotion? You have to go through the emotion. You want to love someone selflessly. More than you love yourself. More than you love yourself. And that can only happen through the mind. The mind influences. <laughs> if the heart can inherit <laughs> some of the mind's objectivity, it can love objectively. But that's an advanced, an advanced level. <laughs>